Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Annette. My name is Nanette. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Hi. Uh, I think I was born a compulsive overeater. Um, I was always in my household identified as a fat kid. I have two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister, and um, I was always told that my mother always told me she could never find anything for me to wear, and I'd better learn how to sew when I had the first opportunity. So in junior high school, I had the first opportunity and learned how to sew. In the last two years of my compulsive overeating, um, I had basically two dress patterns. Um, I made my own clothes. I had um, a muumuu and an A-line dress with no darts. And I had the same dress pattern, which I made out of polyester interlock. Polyester interlock is like a gigantic chain stitch all across the fabric. And sometimes I'd get a little run in the begin at the bottom of the hem, and it would start to run up all the way to my neck. And I, w- I made this dress pattern in um, a U-neck, a V-neck, a square neck, a princess neck, and uh, this little thing with a little tie in the same pattern. And I wore this dress pattern to meetings, to work, to picnics. If I had been invited to the Academy Awards, it would have been this dress. And... Um, when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, I came in in 1975, and um, it was for the reason, uh, I, my purpose for going is to lose weight so I could catch a man who would then fix me. I didn't know who that man was, but I knew a man would fix me. And uh, I came in here, and I, I could tell from the sharing that I had exactly what you had. And you called yourselves compulsive overeaters, and from that first meeting, I called myself a compulsive overeater. And um, I went to maybe three or four meetings every week. And sometimes after the meeting, I would eat enormous, about, enormous amounts of food to get rid of the feeling of having been in a meeting. And I didn't identify it at the time, but I always ate for relief. I, I'm the garden variety compulsive overeater, eat when I'm happy, eat when I'm sad, eat when I'm bored, eat when I'm excited. And to this very day when I have a meal, there's part of me that thinks, it's a party. And I enjoy this little party, and then it's over, and then I get another party later. <laughs> and um, so I haven't stopped liking food, but it's, I eat differently. Um, an example of how I ate was um, after work, I would go to a fast food place and ordered as if for two people. I would order two main things, two side things, and one diet soda. <laughs> And I didn't eat it yet. I would just put it in the car and drive to the next fast food place of whatever I had in mind because basically if I thought it, I ate it. If a food thought entered my brain, I would have to eat that food. As sooner, the sooner the better. But sometimes it had to be the next day or even later in the week. But whatever food thought entered my brain, I had to eat it because I was obsessed with whatever came into my brain. And so then I would drive to the third fast food place um, to buy whatever I had in mind. 
and I would sit in the parking lot in my car at the last fast food place, and I'd eat everything. And I feel this this relief, like the work day's over now. Now I can go home. And some nights um, I would um, go home and without going to the fast food places, and I would put maybe two or three frozen dinners in the oven, take a shower, put on a clean flannel nightgown, and um, get comfortable, watch TV, and eat the frozen dinners. And then maybe an hour later I'd have maybe three sandwiches composed of um, white bread with room temperature butter and sugar sprinkled on it sandwiches with the crust cut off. And maybe an hour or two just before bedtime I'd have... um, a boiled bag of cream spinach and um, a can of fruit cocktail or peaches or pears. And then I felt like I could sleep. And I didn't eat this way every day, but it was not an unusual day at all. And when I came to OA, um, I liked it immediately and I liked you, but I was a a very isolated person. And um, I had... During the first two years of being an OA, I had three periods of abstinence. I had three days, four days, and five days. And sometimes I have one day sprinkled here and there, but they didn't count. And um, I, currently I have 25 and a half years of abstinence, and the second longest time was 27 days. I, it took me eight years to get abstinent. All the other times I had... I was abstinent eight times in eight years, this being the eighth time. And every single abstinence that I was on was meant to be the forever one, the permanent, permanent, forever one. And they never were. And each one of the other seven were, in reality, a strict, stringent diet. And I was smart enough to use the nomenclature we use here. This is not a diet club. But actually, secretly, it was a diet It was for the purpose of losing weight and being perfect. And I thought all of you ate teeny-weeny portions all the time, 24 hours a day, whenever you ate, and ate it perfectly, and that was my goal, to do it the way I fantasized that you did it. And um, finally, um, because I hung around OA, I met members of OA who were also members of AA. And one of these dual members was speaking at an AA meeting, and a few of us OA people decided to hear her speak. I I was included, but I wasn't the one who decided. I'd never been to AA. And I knew that AA, everything sprung from AA. It was the big boys. It was the origin of the species. Everything started with AA. (laughs) So I was really excited to try this AA meeting. And I had no idea what it would be like, but I thought it would be like eight eight men in trench coats in a room with a bare light bulb. That was <laughs> so we caravaned there to see the alcoholics. <laughs> and when we got to the meeting, it was an enormous speaker meeting. And we got there late um, during the break, and everybody was in clusters speaking and talking. And when I walked into that room, I could feel the energy in the air. It was like I I could feel it on my face. It was so palpable. Um, So, and everybody, to me, they looked hip slick and cool. They were pretty people. They were just attractive people. 
And I started to want to go to AA meetings because it was so interesting. And I started to find the AA meetings. By, I'd go to my um, OA meeting and I'd hear, uh, there's an AA meeting here Monday nights. And so I would go Monday nights and would be another speaker meeting. And so that's how I found my AA meetings. And fortunately, they were all big speaker meetings because I really was pretty clueless about anonymity or uh, anything. I was just pretty clueless. And um, I kept seeing this one particular guy at these meetings, and we struck up a relationship, which is like mission accomplished. I came to get a guy, and there he was. Um, and for those of you who happen to know my husband, it's not him. It's another guy. He always wants me to say that because he doesn't want anybody to think that was him. Um, so I would go to meetings with him and I I didn't even get that AA was a program of recovery that's how clueless I was (laughs) to me it was like going to the theater (laughs) there'd be this tragic story and then what happened this happy ending (laughs) and everyone would applaud so um Sometimes during the break, somebody would strike up a conversation with me, and my credentials in AA was, I'm with him. That's my entire credentials. I'm with him. I belong because I'm with him. And that's how I belonged, because I was with him. And sometimes people would talk to me, and, and then they'd find out that I wasn't an alcoholic, and then I tell you, their entire interest drained out of them. <laughs> and they were totally interested in finding someone else. But every now and then, there'd be a kind person who suggested another 12-step program for friends and families of alcoholics. And so my relationship with my boyfriend was um, pretty stormy. It was on again, off again, misunderstandings, walking out, making up, that kind of thing. So I thought, finally, I would go to this other 12-step program to get some handy hints on how to manage him better in a program way. And it was in this other 12-step program that I hit a bottom. And bottom for me is not what gets you to the program, but it's what makes you become willing and teachable. And I became willing and teachable, and I started to follow directions. And I came to, I never said no to a program request, and I got a sponsor, and I followed completely immersed in the program, and I started to change. The biggest outward change um, is the lessening of my shyness. I was so shy, I was debilitatingly shy. I would drop out of a class and do an oral book report. I would take an F. If I knew in college that some oral presentation was involved, I'd drop out of that class. And um, my sponsor said, and I eventually stopped going to OA meetings and strictly the other 12-step program that I belonged to. And... um, my sponsor said, I noticed, Nanette, you never share at meetings. You have to start sharing at meetings. And I said, I don't know what I could say. And she said, I'll tell you what to say. Raise your hand and say, I'm Nanette. My sponsor said, I have to share at every meeting I went to. Thank you. <laughs> and so I, being so willing, I was. I raised my hand and they called on me. But when, I, when they called on me, I couldn't resist the fact that for three to five minutes, 
all the attention was on me. I didn't have to jockey for position. I didn't have to break into a conversation. It was all my floor, and I would share whatever I share. Probably two minutes, because I could barely get it out. And then, then afterwards, I would go to my sponsor and say, was that appropriate? Because I had no clue, and she'd say, that was fine. And I was... The family I came from was so... It's a Chinese family because I'm Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) And everything was a secret. Everything you kept inside, nobody, you know, they never told anybody on the outside. And when I first came to an OA meeting, every person who shared seemed like they were sharing a secret. She's sharing sharing a secret, Nick's secret, and that's a secret. Because that was so... That's how closed we were. And to this day, I honestly don't know how to say thought and feeling words in Chinese, I only know them in English because we didn't talk about thoughts and feelings. I know how to say, it's time to go to bed, it's dinner time, brush your teeth. I know how to say those things. But talk about, I don't even know how to say love because we didn't talk about that at home. So all my thoughts and feeling words come from, it's in English. Anyway, um, I went with a friend in the other 12-step program to Weight Watchers, which is a wonderful food program. And I didn't think it would work because I heard in OA that OA was the last house on the block. And so, but I was with a friend, and she needed to go, and I said, being a friend, I'll go with you when you're ready. And so she was ready uh, after the holidays, after New Year's. She chose the meeting that was 9 a.m. Sunday morning. It's like, oh, no, but I went. And when I got to the meeting, there was a sign on the table that said, no visitors. So I couldn't, like, sit with her unless I joined. So I joined. (laughs) I paid my, excuse me, it was like $15 at that particular time. They gave me literature, and they put me on the scale, and I weighed more than I ever weighed in my entire life. So there I was, joined. And so I said, okay, I'll give this diet a try, even if if it's a half-assed try. That's exactly how I put it. And I started um, to, able, to be able to do this diet, which is weighed and measured. And um, I, two things I brought with me, since I wasn't going to OA meetings, I still considered myself a member, but I didn't go to meetings. I only went to meetings of the other 12-step program. And um, the two things I, I used was one day at a time and the idea of wreckage of the past. Wreckage of the past is past is past, whether it's past two minutes, two years, or 20 years. Past is past. You can't unring a bell. So every time I made a mistake on this food plan, it, it became immediately, immediately wreckage of the past. And that allowed me to go on and not screw it up good. So the wreckage of the past thing helped me. And then after about four or five months on this weight and measure diet, I suddenly couldn't do it. I ate all my bread allotments before lunch. Then I had to have lunch. Then I had to have dinner. Then I had to have those snacks I told you about, the TV. I mean, I just started, is out of control. And I had lost weight before maybe, I forget how long, 13 or 16 years before this Weight Watchers experience. And the way I lost it was obsessing on a man. I think of him, I eat less. Because I needed to have a better body for him to love me. Not a requirement of his, a requirement of mine. I couldn't accept the love unless my body was in order. So I thought of him and lost weight. But this time, 
I didn't want to wait another 13 years because I'd be in my, whatever age, 40s or something by the time, that time. And I was already stop, I had, didn't already stop buying, um, making my own clothes. I was already buying stuff off the rack. So I knew there was a permanent this, um, solution in 12-step programs. So I came back to OA, and that was 26 years ago. And this time I had a really rough time. I, I didn't identify, in those days, you know, the, the OA literature hadn't been written. No 12 and 12, no brown book, just so we use AA literature. And I identified very strongly with being a non-alcoholic because of my other 12-step program. And when they would say, they used to read Chapter 3 at many meetings, um, if you can eat like a gentleman, we take our hats off to you. And I'd get all pissed off because many, like pigs, you're supposed to say, <laughs> so if you translate this, you're supposed to translate it properly, which is, if you can eat like a lady, we take our hands off, hats off to you. And so everything, every portion, any thing that I could find to criticize, I would. And so pretty soon I got so miserable that my husband started to complain about me. And um, relationships was my big thing, so I had to do something. Which, I came back to OA, had a hard time here, I would have to go to my other 12-step program to get grateful so I could come back to OA. Then I'd hate OA, I'd have to go to the other 12-step program to get grateful and be in touch with my recovery and then come to OA and hate OA. And I knew what I had to do when he started to complain. I had to work the steps, because that's what I learned. That's what you do, starting with step one. And that's when I discovered I couldn't do step one. I couldn't do the step one in Overeaters Anonymous. I did it before, but not in OA. I'm going to get my glasses out. Okay. Um, I'm powerless over food. My life has become unmanageable. I didn't believe I was powerless over food. Yeah, I ate crazy, but that wasn't because I was powerless. It's because I ate crazy. And so somebody suggested I write about why I couldn't be powerless over food. And the reason I couldn't be powerless over food is that this is why. I was using my personal power to hold my weight down so I wouldn't weigh the weight that scared me, which was 200 pounds. I didn't want to weigh 200 pounds, so I was using my personal power to hold the weight down. And here you were saying, in order to recover, you have to be powerless. In other words, I'd have to weigh 200 pounds because I didn't have that power to hold that weight down. But if I didn't want to be 200 pounds and using my power to keep my weight down, then I could never recover. It was like catch-22. What do you do? So I went to the AA literature and read step one. And what came up to me to that, in that step was that the reason I have to, I'm powerless is that then I have to do stuff that I would never ordinarily do. Um, I had done this step before, step one, but another 12-step program. And so I thought, in order for me to do step one, I've got to find some way to do it. And this is how I did it. Um, I was told that for me to ask an alcoholic not to drink was like for me to ask a tuberculosis not to cough. The guy who has TB has to cough because that's what his disease made him do. If every time he coughed he said, I'm never going to cough again, I'm going to work 12 steps and never cough again, he's saying two things at, at the same time. He's saying, one, I don't have a real disease, and two, I have power over a cough. 
Well, I know you have no power over a cough and that TB is a genuine disease. So I had to translate that into my compulsive overeating, that it was perfectly okay for me to binge and overeat because I was powerless. If... um, See, I tried doing that step other ways. I tried writing about it, talking about it. Every time I did that step, it was in my brain, in my head. I did the step in my head. And I needed to do that step in my gut. And the only way to do it in my gut is to believe that I was totally powerless. And once I made a decision to be powerless, and it felt like a fraud. I felt like a total fraud. But I knew that was the only way for me to do that step in my gut, to be powerless. Once I made a decision to be powerless... I realized I was also blameless, and that gave me some relief. I was not to blame. If you're powerless, you're also blameless, because every time I would say, I shouldn't have done that, it's like I shouldn't have coughed. I was saying, I do have power, and I should have exercised that power. So then I wondered, how can anybody recover if it's totally okay to overeat and binge? So I went to that dreaded AA literature, and I read it. And what... um, So one of the things that I never see, if I want to binge, I don't want to be interrupted. I might tell you afterwards and tell you how bad I've been, but when I'm planning to binge, forget it. I just want to binge. So I said, what I am empowered to do is call somebody. I'm going to call somebody when I want to binge, and it's okay to binge. It's okay to binge after I call that person, but my job is to call them. So the very first thing that I um, did in recovery is that I noticed that when I went to a restaurant, I ate too many rolls, and it made me feel bad. So I connected that, specific, one specific thing. So I said, this is my guideline for abstinence. When I'm in a restaurant, and if they have rolls, I'm having one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which runs out first. <laughs> I put it that way because... I'd take the roll, I'd use the butter, there'd be a smidgen of butter left. So I have to take the second roll to use up the butter, but there wouldn't be enough butter for the second roll. So I have to open the second butter to use up the second roll. And then there'd be some second butter left, so I'd take the third roll to use up the second butter. So I said one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which runs out first. And then I ate everything else they served me in a restaurant because I figured it was my portion. I was allowed to eat every grain of grass. Every grain of rice, the decorative parsley, the decorative lettuce, it's all mine. And I did that, and I felt great when I just stopped at one roll and one pat of butter. And I didn't do that perfectly because one restaurant had a basket of rolls, of assorted rolls. So big debate. I take the best-looking one or one of each kind? And I, instinctively I knew that if this were a long-term program, if this is part of my life, I cannot feel deprived. So I had... One kind, one of each kind of roll, which turned out to be three, and I, they all shared the same pat of butter, and I felt great. Another abstinent meal. Um, I said meals at meal time with life in between, and if I didn't, and these are my guidelines for abstinence, because if I didn't follow my gu- guidelines, it was not a break in abstinence. It was only that I did not follow my guidelines. There are consequences for not following my guidelines, maybe, such as I have to feel bad about myself. I might have to tell somebody what I did. I might have to gain weight. I might have to be, eat, 
crummy for a few days. I mean, I don't know. There are consequences for not following guidelines. But it's not a break in abstinence. One of the things I discovered, um, the other seven times I was abstinent was all stringent little diets disguised as abstinence. But this one was different from all the others. And one of the differences, I was willing to work step one, be powerless over food and therefore blameless. And I discovered that for me, the word abstinence meant perfection. That's what that word means to me. If somebody took a 30-day chip, they had 30 days of perfection. If they took a 90-day chip, they had 90 days of perfection. And they're celebrating uh, 25 years of perfection. That's what that word meant to me. And so I discovered that I had the disease of perfectionism. And I had the disease of perfectionism so strong, it was like the conjoined twin of the disease of compulsive overeating. We were joined. We were, if one twin got the flu, they both got the flu. If one twin took an aspirin, it would be in both circulation systems. They were conjoined. So in order for me to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating, I had to also be willing, just willing, to recover from the disease of perfectionism. And the only way I have ever found to recover from the disease of perfectionism is that I, when I feel like I'm imperfect, I have to keep it. Because every time I started over, I was practicing the disease of perfectionism. This wasn't good enough. I should have done better. And those are voices of the disease, that criticism. So... Um, So I had to recover from the disease of perfectionism. Um, one day, I was abstinent about three months, which is like the longest time ever, considering the second longest time was 27 days. I mean, it was like I was feeling so good. And it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly I wanted to binge. Not only did I want to binge, I had to binge. I just had to. I didn't know why I had to. I didn't want to ruin my abstinence. I didn't. When I, I, I just had to. So I thought, just for the hell of it, I'll call somebody first. I, I'll take the action. It's none of my business what I do after that, but my job is to call. So I called somebody who, who shoved her phone number at me at a meeting that I didn't know. I didn't know her. And so I called her. And so I said, hi, this is Nanette. I met you at X meeting, and I want to binge. And she said, you must really want to recover because you called me. And until she said that, I didn't know that I really wanted to recover. I thought I wanted to tell her how bad I was going to be. Um, but when she told me, I felt better. But that doesn't mean I was going to binge. I still going to binge. She said, when would you like to start binging? And she didn't say, like, what's going on? What are you saying? None of that. Just when would you like to start binging? And I thought, this is easier than I thought. <laughs> So I thought if I binged at 6, it would look more like dinner, because I was doing meals. <laughs> my, my food plan was meals at mealtime with life in between. Life in between included popcorn at the movies. So I said 6. She said, can you wait until 6? I said, yes. She said, don't binge until 6. I said, okay. And we hung up. I mean, it must have been a minute phone call. So then I had two hours to kill. So I went and fixed my bed. I did the dishes in the sink. Then I grabbed the TV guide, and I was watching TV, channel hopping. And suddenly I looked at the clock. It was 6.15. It was 15 minutes past my binge start. I could have been binging 15 minutes, and I didn't. 
And suddenly, at this time, I did not want to binge. I could have been doing it those 15 minutes, and I didn't. And it was like, it felt so clean. So then I fixed dinner, which was a little hill on a plate. And I... I ate this entire hill. But you know, the meal stopped at the edge of the plate. It stopped. The meal didn't travel onto the kitchen. It stopped at the edge of the plate. It's like the, I subscribe to the notion that the miracle for us isn't that we eat three times a day, it's that we stop three times a day. And that was another day of abstinence. Let's quickly check the time. Okay. Um, I'll talk about my higher power. I had a higher power when I walked into OA, and then it was expanded and developed in my other 12-step program until I totally had a very wonderful dependence on my higher power with a source of strength and everything. It was everything. If I had to describe my higher power, it would have been this. Um, that my, I, my, I call my higher power God. A loving God who is infinitely wise. But I didn't have a higher power in Overeaters Anonymous at all. Zero. It was like a vast wasteland, a desert. And it, it didn't make sense to me that I had a, had a God in my other 12-step program, in the rest of my life, in the rest of my world, but not in OA. And so I was, it was suggested to me to write about it. And so this is, why, this is why there was no higher power for me in OA. If God really loved me, he wouldn't have made me fat. Period. So how can I get in touch with something like that? I cannot get in touch with this higher power who is not pulling for me, who is not on my side, who actually made me fat. So then it was suggested to me that I create a higher power, test that out to see if it works. So I thought, gave it some thought how I would like my higher power to be. This is how I wanted him to be. I wanted my higher, higher power to want me to live sin and that everything that happened in my life was in preparation for that time. And when I made a decision to try that out, it totally clicked in with the higher power I had in the rest of my life. And so that's what it was. I, didn't, I couldn't binge. That wasn't a wrong. It wasn't a punishment. It was a necessary experience. Every Every experience I had was a necessary experience for me to live sin later. Even if I ate angrily and said, fuck you, and the, word, the way I ate, it was like, it was a necessary thing. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was an experience I'm supposed to have, needed to have, and provided by my higher power. And so suddenly my higher power became a friend to me because all my experiences was needed for him to do what he needed to do later for me. Um, when I was about nine months abstinent, which is like the first year, it's like, whoa, I cannot believe I'm nine months. It was like such a honeymoon. And I was by myself again, watching TV in my apartment, and my husband was out, and I thought, this thought entered my brain, I wonder what's in the pantry. Mm-hmm. So I walked in, went in the kitchen, and I found a box of Nabisco crackers. And I thought, oh, I didn't know this, this was here. So I opened the cracker up, it was like it was like um, in the wax paper thing, and I had, it was rolled down with a clothespin on top. So I, I took the clothespin out, unrolled it, gra- took a grab of cracker, rolled it back down, put the clothespin back in, 
put the box, the little thing in the slot in the box and put it back. Sat in front of the TV and it went like that. It was like I breathed it. It was gone. And I thought, it's gone. Oh. So went back a second time, did the same thing, took another grab and sat down. And that was gone too. So went back a third time. The third time I knew that I was never going to stop on this crack, this box of crackers. So I just took the whole box of crackers, sat in front of the TV and ate it. And I thought, oh my God, what did I do? And I couldn't, I couldn't explain it away. I couldn't say I'm recovering from the disease of perfectionism. And incidentally, I'll just sidetrack by saying, perfectionism, like beauty, is in the eyes of the beholder. It is not a definite, definite thing, and this is perfect, that's imperfect. It totally comes from me, just as your idea of beauty comes from you. So it's not finite. So anyway, I wanted to keep it a secret because I'd never been absent nine months before. I, I've lost, I, I looked good to me, and I ruined it. I didn't want to share it. But I believe that I am sick as my secrets, so I knew I had to share it. So finally, when I got the courage, I shared it with my sponsor. And I told her what I had done, and I asked her the big question, am I still abstinent? And she said something I didn't want to hear. She said, I can't tell you. You have to decide for yourself. Because for me, she was the voice of authority. If she had said, no, you haven't broken your absence, I would have said, I'm so glad. I haven't. She said I hadn't. Or if she said, yes, you have, you have to change your date, then I would have changed my date, show everybody in OA and her what a good girl I was, following the rules, and would have changed it. But she didn't tell me, and so I kept asking her in different ways to see which way she was leaning. <laughs> and she simply would not tell me. But just before we hung up, she said something. She said, ask your higher power for the willingness to be rigorously honest. And when she said that, I knew that was the right answer. So that weekend, I practically chanted, Dear God, please give me the willingness to be rigorously honest. Dear God. And finally, Sunday night, I suddenly, I was by myself in the room, in the living room, and I heard a voice. I heard this voice so clearly, I actually turned my head to see who was there. But nobody was there. It was not a booming voice or anything. It was just a room temperature voice. And um, this is, it was a split second, but this is what the voice said. If by starting over, you're back to square one, it would be a lie. So if you, you want to be rigorously honest, you cannot start over. Because whatever this looks like, it's not that. It's not that that was, no matter what it looks like to you. And if you want to be rigorously honest, you cannot start over. Because it would be a lie. And I couldn't believe that that was the message. Because it, it felt like, how could that be? I, I didn't know God could be so generous. I just didn't. And so again, I'm sick of my secrets. I had to share this with somebody. And I shared it with a friend on program. She was really happy for me. I didn't get why she was happy for me. And I felt... And I felt... Um, she just likes me. That's why she's okay with it. So then I shared it at a meeting. And... Uh, it seems like a quarter of the meeting came up and hugged me. And so, there it is. I have to keep my abstinence. I have to have a tainted abstinence. I can't start over. I can't start fresh. I have that big glitch in it, this blooper in my recovery. So, 
there it is. I had to, I wanted to be rigorously honest, so I had to continue. And so I have a tainted abstinence. 25 years of tainted abstinence. <laughs> and I have this rule that somebody taught me, which is, um, I'll just share two more things, maybe. Um, and there may be no time for Q&A. But um, if ever think, I think I've broken my absence, I don't make a decision of whether I have or haven't for three to six months. Then I can reassess and say, yes, I broke it, no, I didn't. But in the meantime, I have to keep on keeping on just in case I haven't. <laughs> and um, I'll share um, this with you, how I envision my recovery. I see my recovery like a forest. And the forest, and the trees in the forest are days of abstinence. There are enough trees in the forest to make the forest a forest. There are sequoias and fir trees and Christmas trees and oaks, really healthy trees. And some of these trees are dead. The trees, lightning hit it, it died, maggots crawling through them. If you hike over there, you'll find a grove of tree stumps. But if I only look at the trees, I'm going to miss the rest of what's in my forest because there are more there than trees. There are grass and waterfalls and streams and lakes and California poppies and blue jays. I don't look at a tree stump in a forest and say, oh my God, there's a tree stump here, it's dead. Let's trash this forest and go on to the fresh one. Because it has nothing to do with me. If I'm to believe that a forest is God-given and God-made, then I have to accept everything that's there. If my recovery is God-given and God-made, I have to accept everything that's there, no matter what my personal opinion is. So there it is. I, that's my recovery, like the forest. It's, it comes out of nature. It's not separate from nature. Anything that's alive has to grow and change, including the way I eat, and I don't know where it evolves to, it, that's not up to me. But it can't be static, it can't be the same all the time, because then it's dead, it's not alive, and it's not living. So to be viable, it has to change. So anyway, I am so grateful you asked me to um, share my experiences, and thank you very much.